First Corinthians chapter one in your Bible. Let me ask you to help me preach by turning to that place and following along. What an incredible song! I've not heard that, brother. Uh, thank you for helping us worship with good theology. Uh, it's uh, such a such a treasure. I can tell why Jim is so excited about being able to partner with you in gospel ministry. Uh, while you're finding that place, I'd, I'd be out of place if I didn't say thank you to my brother Jim for allowing me to come back and be a part of this. I'm excited about when I get invited back to go anywhere. That's uh, uh, just a, a plus uh, in my estimation, but especially to be with this this brother and uh, just to see God's grace in his life. And thank you. Uh, I agree with Jim. There's a lot of places you could be, a lot of things you could be doing this afternoon, and so I'm grateful uh, that you've carved out the time uh, to be a part of what I think is an important study. It's an important consideration, and we just got a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, overview uh, of that, some things to hang our hats on. First Corinthians chapter 1, um, the Apostle Paul, of course, is the human author, but he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that means this is God's Word for us. We have the opportunity to hear his voice this afternoon. And so let's listen for it, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, and he quotes here from Isaiah 29, verse 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Like many of you, I'm sure, um, several weeks ago, I watched with great anticipation and excitement uh, the Super Bowl commercials. Um, I... Uh, I look forward to those uh, when my teams uh, that I kind of follow uh, don't make it uh, to the big dance. Uh, I'm uh, more excited about uh, the, the Super Bowl ads 
Um, and um, I uh, certainly enjoyed looking at those and listening to them, watching them. My favorite uh, one this year uh, was uh, actually the commercial uh, from uh, the Workday Financial Group uh, in which they um, just had some uh, famous rock stars who were speaking to um, the corporate types, uh, they said, and they were telling them, stop calling each other rock stars. Uh, and basically, you know, what they were, were doing was defending their territory. They were saying, you know, we, we've paid the price, uh, we've done all the travel, uh, we've got the skill. You guys stop calling one another rock stars. You know, what they were doing was essentially saying that, uh, you know, if, if everybody is a rock star, nobody's a rock star. There was some element of protection of their territory and their identity. And all of us know how that can be. Essentially, the Apostle Paul was saying the same thing. He was telling the Christians, stop calling your preachers rock stars. We know that from the paragraph immediately before this in which he tells them in verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. It was a problem in Corinth that uh, was kind of the seedbed for what we experience today, and that is we live in a rock star preacher culture, a rock star Christian culture. And the Apostle Paul spoke into that culture and said, stop it. Quit calling your preachers rock stars. But you see, Paul's motive was not the same motive of those rock stars on the commercial that I mentioned just a moment ago. He, he wasn't trying to protect his territory. He wasn't trying to, to protect himself as some rock star apostle, some super apostle that would, would be in a class all, all by himself. He was... He was trying to, to guard from something else. He was trying to protect them from something else that was looming in the shadows. And I think, I think it's stated very clearly in verse 17 when the Apostle Paul says, God called me to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. And here it is, brothers. Watch this now. Look at it very carefully. Because I think this is the reason that he goes on to say the rest of what he says in chapter 1. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Did you know you could do that? Did you know that it was possible in your life and ministry to render the most powerful thing in the universe impotent? I think that what the Apostle Paul does then is he goes on basically to say to the Corinthians, this is not the way you learn the gospel. And he begins to remind them about the nature and character of the gospel that they learned so that, so that they didn't render it impotent. So they didn't rob it of its power. And by the way, if you want to see some of the long-term implications of that, Pastor Jim mentioned one of them, you know, just a, a little bit ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
When he's going to say, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This is one of the things that it gives birth to. It gives birth to unspiritual Christians. You get the gospel wrong. Forget the nature of it. You begin to, 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 to look for other criteria like they were looking for in their preachers. Looking for, for a, a, a different kind of wisdom, a different kind of philosophy about life and the world. It can lead to this. Maybe worse than that in 1 Corinthians 15. In that great resurrection power passage, look at, look at what Paul says. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved... If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. An impotent gospel can lead to unspiritual Christians, real Christians, just unspiritual ones. But an impotent gospel can also lead to unregenerate church members. People that are on the rolls of our church and sitting in our worship services, singing our songs, listening to our sermons, giving their money, but have never truly been born again. Those are some of the stakes. And I certainly included the risk that was on the horizon for the Corinthians, and that is this disunity, this division. And you just do the math. You know how that can happen. You begin to align yourself with what they were seeing as rock star preachers. It's going to create divisions in the church. And whether it's a, an individual or philosophy, or whether it's a, you know, a particular bandwagon or a particular platform, anything really other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has a tendency to divide us. We're going to line up under our favorite. So, how do we avoid that? Well, I think the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians what the Word says to us this afternoon, and that is that, that God's power and glory... His power and glory have been manifested in His wisdom in the gospel. His power and glory have been manifested through His wisdom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And anytime we chase something else down, we align ourselves with something or someone else other than that, it's not only going to divide us, but it's going to lead to spiritual bankruptcy. So, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, Paul really doesn't tell the Corinthians to do anything in the rest of this chapter. Okay? He's going to get to application of this, and we'll talk some about that in, 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 in chapter 2 tonight. But, but in this chapter, he really doesn't tell, other than the point at which he says, consider your calling. That's about as close as he gets. So what's he doing and what are we supposed to do with this? Well, basically what he's doing is he's reminding them about the nature of the gospel. He's reminding them about the nature of what he variously refers to as the gospel, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the testimony of God, the mystery of God. He reminds them about it. And he says to them, don't forget. Don't forget. So... 
I want to I call your attention to two reminders very simply. I think the Apostle Paul reminds them about the purpose of God. The purpose of God in the gospel. He's not unpacking that completely, but as far as what he's addressing in here, in this chapter right here, he addresses the purpose of God and then he addresses the plan of God. The plan of God for accomplishing that purpose. So let me walk you through those two and let's be reminded about the nature of the power and the glory of God as it's been manifested in His wisdom in the gospel. Start with the purpose of God. I think in this passage of Scripture, Paul focuses on two primary purposes. This is the purpose of God. Number one, to demonstrate the superiority of His gospel. To demonstrate the superiority of His gospel over the philosophies, the wisdom of the world. Now you understand that Paul is not saying that the the world doesn't have any kind of wisdom. Certainly there are some, Jesus even talked about this, I think in Luke 16, about some of the, the, the wisdom that sometimes the world would have that was even better than what Christians had. You know, if my car engine is broke, I need a mechanic. If I've got, I need heart surgery, I need a surgeon. I I may not be thinking as much about whether they're Christians or not. I want somebody who can fix my car. I want somebody that knows heart surgery and can perform the surgery. There certainly is some wisdom that that people other than believers can have. But you you understand that Paul here is talking about the, the wisdom that matters, the wisdom that's not limited to the things of this world. Wisdom with regard to eternity. Wisdom with regard to how you know God. Wisdom with regard to how you, 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 you are made right with God. Things that are important and have, have eternal implications and are not trivial in comparison like my broken car or even a heart surgery that might end a life in this world. Paul's talking about the wisdom And he's talking about that which matters. And so, the Apostle Paul is very clear in in a thread that runs all the way through this passage of Scriptures to say that God wanted to demonstrate the superiority of His gospel. Just look at this. And by the way, for those of you orthodox, maybe legalistic expositors, I I want you to know that this passage is hard to do some of the things that we might typically do in exposition, like go verse by verse, or just walk through a passage from beginning to end. That's a favorite thing to do for me, and we'll do some of that. But you got to remember that the text of Scripture wasn't given in the form of a sermon. It wasn't given to us even to be a sermon book. And Paul in this passage of Scripture is addressing this issue, and so he circles back to things, he repeats things. There are things that run all the way through this that are crucial for us to look at from a big picture standpoint, and one of those is this one, and that is God's purpose to demonstrate the superiority of the gospel. I mean, look at it. In verse 19, he starts off by quoting from Isaiah 29, when the Assyrians were, were about to breach Jerusalem, and, 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 and God basically was saying, I'm using them as instruments in my hand to discipline my people, the princes and the leaders and the rulers of, of the Jewish people. That's who he's talking about in this, this particular passage of Scripture. I'll destroy the wisdom of the wives, The discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Then look down. Look down at verse 25. What does he say? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You, you see the similarity in all, all of those symptoms? You know, it, it's, almost, it's almost like God was, you know, it, 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 Paul was saying, you know, it, it, Paul was taunting, you know, the enemies. He was, he was and God is just, is, this is like an MMA match that never got past the, you know, the first 10 seconds. I mean, he just is simply saying, look, God wins. God is stronger. What God has done, what God has given you, he was telling the Corinthians. It's, it's where victory is. God was demonstrating the superiority of His gospel over the way the world thinks. And you know this. You know this. You know how in the gospel as a believer in Jesus Christ, those things of eternity, things that matter, things of knowing God, things of being right with Him, things of having your sins forgiven, Things of getting to spend eternity when this life is over. To spend eternity in the fellowship of God. All of that and more is wrapped up in the gospel. And Paul wanted to remind these believers that's the nature of the gospel that you embrace. Secondly, not only God demonstrate the superiority of his gospel, he he defended the splendor of his glory. He defended the splendor of his glory in the gospel. Do you notice at the end of this chapter? There, there, there's, there's three verses here in verses 29, 30, and 31 in which there are two purpose clauses. And we can't miss that. Paul says everything he says up to this point, And then he says, so that. And he says it twice. Notice in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, brothers, let me remind you, God will share his glory with no one. He will share it with no one. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. This is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. There's no one worthy of sharing the glory of God. And God will share His glory with the one. So everything Paul says up to this point is rooted in that purpose. And he's going to repeat it then in verse 31 just in a different way by maybe a loose translation of Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24. Do you see it? So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And right between those two purpose clauses, right between them, you've got verse 30. And it's as if Paul was saying, it's because of him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's just a, you know, a, a list of those things that, that, that the world's wisdom doesn't address and can't address. But yet the gospel does. 
And so in, in, in all of what God was doing in the manifestation of His power and glory through His wisdom in the gospel, He was protecting His glory. And so, so we have to think about that in relation to all of what Paul says before that. So, the purpose of God to demonstrate his superior, superiority of the gospel over the world's wisdom and then to defend the splendor of his glory. So how did he do it? Well, that's where the plan of God comes in. And I think that's what Paul really is unpacking throughout this, is really helping us to understand the plan God put together in order to accomplish those things, in order to show and demonstrate the superiority of His gospel, of His grace, but also to defend the splendor of His glory. So how did He do it? What was His plan? Well... Number one, he contrived an unacceptable message in order for that to happen, right? I mean, Paul really starts with this in verse 18, the word of the cross, the logos, revelation, the message of the cross, he said, is what? Well, it's folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. He's going to get a little bit more specific as you look down in verses 22 and 23, for Jews demand signs. They wanted God to prove Himself to them through the miraculous. Greeks seek wisdom. They wanted to be able to rationalize it and make sense of it. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews. They couldn't get past the Deuteronomy passage that said that cursed is him who hangs on a tree. They got tripped up over that. And the fact that Jesus died on the cross and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles. You ever thought about it? You ever thought about how this message must seem to those we proclaim it to? I mean, just in its base form, right? They're listening to you share the gospel. They're listening to you preach the gospel. And they're thinking, okay, let me get this straight. If I want to miss hell and make heaven, if I want to be right with, with this God, then what I need to do is I need to put my complete trust in a, a Jewish homeless guy that lived 2,000 years ago and died outside the city of Jerusalem on a criminal's cross. And you're saying, that's right. You got it. If you'll do that, you're in. If you'll do that, you can be saved. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? <laughs> Doesn't that just sound a little bit foolish on the surface? And yet, think about it. God put that together as the message, as the message by which people are saved. He goes on. Not only did he contrive an unacceptable message, but he, he chose an unreasonable method for this salvation. And now, now Paul, in describing the method that people come to know Christ in, he, he really addresses it, I think, from 
you know, about three different standpoints. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, he, he says that it's a message of grace. I appreciated Jim emphasizing this just a little bit ago. I hope you don't miss the grace in the sovereignty of God that runs all the way through this passage of Scripture. Go back to verse 18, for example. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The language of the New Testament here indicates somebody, you know, is, somebody else is doing this. They are having this done uh, to, to them. Look down at verse 21. This, this verse is absolutely amazing. Since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God. I love that. This delighted God to put this together like this. It pleased God that through the folly of what we preach, look, to save those who believe. Who's doing the saving? God is, Right? Not us, Him. We're being saved because, because He is doing the saving. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called. Nobody calls themselves, right? You don't call yourself. I don't call that. Somebody else does the calling. God is doing the calling. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's going to use a similar thing in a noun form in verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. This calling is something that comes from the outside. Paul is speaking about something that is only, comes about only by the grace of God. And by His sovereign choice. But there's another part to it, not just grace, but faith. Faith. You see it there in verse 21? Since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who, what? Who believe. You know, he's going to come back to this in the next chapter. We'll talk about it tonight, but you can just glance over to chapter 2, verse 5. So that your faith, he says, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There is this faith, this belief this receptivity, this yes that is on the table to this call of God. Now those two things right there, by the way, are in and of themselves a mystery. If you just stop right there, how can that be? How can it be all of God's grace, all of His sovereign activity, and yet there be this responsibility on the part of the people listening to this to say yes to it, to put their trust in Him. Beloved, I don't want to chase a rabbit here, but I just say to you, I wish, I wish we would learn to be okay with the mysteries that are in the Bible. Our failure to do so sometimes causes us to lose our preaching platforms, lose our pastorates, Sometimes it splits churches. Sometimes it's causing churches to run off pastors all over second order stuff. All over, listen to me, the feeling that we've got to be able to figure everything out. And you try to, you try to reconcile the sovereignty of God and salvation 
His good grace with the responsibility of someone believing, someone saying yes to this. And we can, we can couch it in all the theological terms and explanations we want, but the reality is, brothers, our minds will never be able to get our arms around the wisdom of God in that tension. That's why when people ask me, are you an Arminianist or are you a Calvinist? I say, no, I'm a Spurgeonist. Spurgeon, he believed in the sovereignty of God completely, totally. But he also believed in the responsibility of man. And he would be asked, how do you bring those together? How do you rationalize that? How do you reconcile them? He said, I don't. They're both in the Bible, and I'm just going to preach both. That's a really, really fun place to be. It's a good place to be. Paul deals with both elements of that here when he speaks about this method that God put together. But there's actually a third part of this method. And you know what it is? Proclamation. The message God designed to be shared, to be announced. Now, I don't think this is limited to the preaching event because he's not primarily writing to preachers at this point. He's talking to all believers. The Corinthians, as members of the body of Christ, were guilty of the error here. They were the ones that were, that were, that were uh, uh, in danger of, 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 of giving in to the philosophies of the world and setting aside or at least minimizing the gospel and rendering it impotent. I, I, think, I think this doesn't just include preaching. It includes personal witnessing. The point I want you to see is that, that Paul says this is a message, and he almost does this by, by implication, by assumption, this is a message that God designed to be shared, to be proclaimed, to be declared. Look at verse 21 again, gem-packed verse. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we do what? What we preach. Some manuscripts actually say the folly or the foolishness of preaching here. This is a a foolish message that was intended to be shared. In verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. So just get this. This is is all he's saying. God, God chose for the method... Of, of people engaging this, this unacceptable message. He chose them as if the unacceptability of the message was not enough. He chose a method that, that actually brings together the sovereign grace of God and the, the free will of, of man to believe that message and to embrace it. And, and he chose for that message, the way for those to be brought together is for someone to tell the story. Someone to tell about this glory of God manifested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God has chosen, He's contrived an unacceptable message and He's chosen an unreasonable method of this salvation. But there's actually one other part to it. None of those were enough. God calls really unlikely men to be the recipients of that. 
Now, I'm going to include women. Paul uses brothers in verse 26. He probably is using it more broadly, brothers and sisters. He is talking to the church, but the word men is used in the text, and it fits the alliteration, so we're going to go with it right now. Okay. Calls unlikely men. For consider your calling, verse 26, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You ever find yourself reading the Bible and having to pause at some places and just say, I'm really glad that's in there. I'm really glad that's in the Bible. This is one of those places for me. I'm really glad 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26 is in the Bible. Because it's here. You know that Paul is, is he's certainly not saying that, okay, there's, you know, there's no Christians that came from well-to-do families. There's no Christians that didn't have prominent positions of, of authority. There's no Christians that are, you know, that are nice looking. You know, he, he doesn't say any of that. I mean, the text is clear to say not many of you. But actually, Paul's point is just a contrast. Contrast the way we come to the gospel. The way we come to the gospel with the way that the world thinks you attain you attain status and position and power. This, this is not something we come to because of the way we look or how well we can talk. It's not something we come to because we earn it or deserve it. It's not something that we come to because we score enough brownie points. We, we, we earn our way into this and we, we get in God's good favor because of the way that we act. Which, by the way is one of the reasons that this gospel is foolishness to the world because they can't fathom something that is not dependent upon themselves. And Paul's simply saying that God calls unlikely people. People that really, either they don't have any of that to try to appeal to or... They don't appeal to it, even if they, they have it. I mean, think about what God did. An unacceptable message, an unreasonable method of embracing that message, and unwilling people like us get to be the recipients of it. Now do the math and put all of that together. God chose that kind of message that kind of method for embracing that message. And he gave it to people like us. So that. So that. Nobody. Steals his glory. You understand the wisdom of that? <laughs> you understand the wisdom of God choosing. A foolish message. Foolish means of, of getting that message. Foolish people like us. So that, listen, when he demonstrates and releases his power through that and supernatural stuff happens, otherworldly things happen, people are forgiven of sin. 
made right with a holy God, given the hope of eternity that we talked about earlier. When, when, when factions cease to exist and everybody agrees, that's otherworldly stuff, right? When marriages are put back together, lame fathers come back home, divided churches are unified. When all of that stuff happens and the dust settles, Because God has chosen an unacceptable message and an unreasonable method and unlikely people to give it to, nobody can say, look at that preacher. Look at that church. Look at that denomination. Look at that strategy. Look at that mission statement. Look at those core values. Nobody can put the credit... Anywhere, one place. The only conclusion they can come to is only God could do that. Only God could do that. And brothers, when that happens, when that happens, the gospel is not rendered impotent. It is released in all of its supernatural and otherworldly and life-changing power. The power and the glory of God is manifested in His wisdom through the gospel. Let's don't ever forget it. So don't ever stop preaching it. But as children of God, let's don't ever stop remembering its nature and embracing it every day of our lives. Let's pray together. God, we know that we could never think of this stuff. The world can't think of it. Only in your wisdom could a plan like this be put together. And we know that you ordained this from eternity past. And we want to say thank you for it. God, I pray that we would be brothers who never allow the gospel to stop being effectual, effective in our lives and our ministries because we water it down or we set it aside or we give it a secondary role. Oh, God. Oh, God, may it feature. May it feature in everything we do. To the end, Lord, that you might show yourself strong, your superiority, your greatness, your omnipotence, as well as you might show the splendor of your glory, because only you are worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.